Blog Talk Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I welcome you today to this very special edition of the King of Instruments series, a series devoted to the pipe organ and the artists who champion its repertoire. Today we are excited to have a very special artist with us who will be performing in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral. Anthony Williams is currently Associate Professor of Music and University Organist at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he teaches organ and courses in music history, including courses in American music. He returned to Fisk in the fall of 2005 as visiting artists and residents following the evacuation from New Orleans, Louisiana, due to Hurricane Katrina. From 1990 to 2005, he was a member of the music faculty at Dillard University in New Orleans. Dr. Williams began his teacher career at Fisk in the late 1980s, where he served as university organist and director of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Please welcome Dr. Anthony Williams. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for being on this show today. It's an honor to speak with you. Now, tell us about your exciting recital coming up this weekend at the Washington National Cathedral. Well, it's, uh, this, as you said, this weekend at 5.15 p.m., I'm playing uh, kind of an eclectic program of uh, music by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, uh, Mark Fact, Leo Sowerby, Cesar Franck, and Louis Vierne. And, uh, Sounds like an exciting uh, program. I, I think so. I'm very, I'm very pleased with it. Looking forward to playing it. Um, I chose uh, the uh, Mark Fax piece and the Leo Sowerby piece because both of them have ties to Washington D.C. Sowerby was the latter years of his life the director of the school of, uh, I think, school college of church music at the National Cathedral, and Mark Fax uh, taught for many years at Howard University. Indeed, he did. Mark Fact is certainly a beloved figure in Washington, D.C. He also was the organist at historic Asbury United Methodist Church, which is downtown. So it's definitely a delight to be able to hear that music by uh, that great composer. Yes, I'm looking forward to playing it. Definitely. Now, tell me something. The um, Just one second here. I need to make a short adjustment. Uh Now, tell me something. I'm sure it's a, a delight to play the great organ of the Washington National Cathedral. It's a large instrument built by E.M.E. Skinner with uh, just about 10,647 pipes. What is what is it like to have all that power right at your fingertips? Uh, I think first word that comes to mind for me is thrilling. I just... It does be uh, the biggest problem becomes what can I not play on that instrument <laughs> and narrowing the program down to not play all day because there's so much that organ can play. But it's a wonderful instrument, a wonderful room to play in. Um, this is actually my second recital at the cathedral. So um, I'm uh, so excited to be back and to have been invited back. But it's just it's a, it's a joy to play. I have always had, I had a fun time with it the last time, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. Now, tell me, what is the uh, process uh, like to be selected 
um, to play at such a prestigious place at the Washington National Cathedral for any organist out there? What are all the requirements that you had to go to to basically be able to have such an uh, opportunity? Well, basically, I sent. They asked for a recent recording uh, or from le- recent performances, so I did. I sent them a recent recording from um, a recital a few years back, and um, that was back in '06 when I played before. And again, I just wrote back to them and said, "I am available, and um, if you'd like any, another recording, I can do that." And I. I may have sent one in. I don't remember now. I sent a second one in, but I was invited back. And so that's, to me, an even greater honor to be invited back to play. Well, it certainly is. So in terms of your recording, when you submitted that recording, did you have to show contrasting styles, different periods? What was the makeup of the repertoire? Uh, basically, it was that. It was this recording I put together of uh, some recitals that were recent, and I did try to show the contrasting repertoire, even though more than likely I would probably not play any Bach on that instrument just uh, because of the room and uh, the instrument, the nature of the instrument. Uh, but I did. I believe there was some Bach on the recording that I submitted just to say I do play it. <laughs> you know, but it was a variety of pieces. Small periods. Now, tell me something. I was looking through your list of accomplishments, uh, and one of the things that really rang out was one of your, your published uh, scholarly works. What sparked your interest in the keyboard works of John Wesley Work? Well, John Work, um, actually, I should start by saying I grew up in the church that the Work family belonged to from John Work I, who founded the first choir, John Work's grandfather who founded the first choir in the church, and actually his daughter was the first organist of the church. So I grew up in the church. Uh, John worked the third, and his wife, Edith, were very good friends with my parents. And actually they sat one row in front of us in church when I was a young kid. And um, I've always uh, liked this music. The choir sang a lot of his choral music. And um, so we I grew up hearing his music, and then Edith worked, always took an interest in me, especially when she discovered my interest in music and pretty much followed my career up until the time she passed away in 1995. And uh, she gave me, I think it really sparked the interest for my high school graduation present, she gave me a copy of John Work's organ suite from the Deep South. And I learned it actually when I was in graduate school, and that just kind of prompted my interest in exploring that Knowing that work had written mostly choral and vocal music, I thought it might be interesting to see what organ pieces he did. And that's what I really went looking for and found he didn't write very much for the organ, but he also wrote for the piano, so it was suggested I expand um, the work to include all the keyboard music. You know, it's such a wonderful opportunity to be able to learn something new because as much music that I've been exposed to, I had no idea that John Work wrote keyboard works until I read your bio and saw that that was the basis of your um, dissertation. So, I mean, it's just phenomenal. Like you mentioned, I always thought that John Work, you know, wrote spirituals and choral arrangements. So uh, that's definitely something, you know, that if people are listening, something worth them going out to research. Right. Um, I, I want to... 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a wonderful uh, point. Now, could you maybe speak about the process uh, that it took you to prepare for this uh, recital or just preparing for a major organ recital in general? Process? Um, well, first of all, I do ask for the stop list for every instrument that I'm playing a recital on. So, Because we do really have to tailor our programs to fit the instrument. No no two organs are ever alike, even if they're by the same builder. They're, you know, they're like children. They're different different personalities and different um, characteristics. So no two organs are ever alike. So I look at the acoustic of the stop list and also the acoustics of the room and I see certain stops that I think, well, you know, it'd be nice if I can think of a piece that uses this particular stop as a solo stop, and partially why I, I did pick the Sowerby, Were You There? It uses a couple stops you don't hear very often on many instruments today. One is an English horn, and the other is a clarinet, so, and both of which are on that instrument at the National Cathedral. And two, I, again, look at the stops, look at the organ, look at the room. I always like playing the music of Cesar Franck in a very live room, such as the National Cathedral. So I always try to program a piece by Franck when I have that type of room and the instrument that will fit the music as well. But I think, first of all, I look at the instrument and see if it's more romantic sounding or more Baroque sounding or if it's an American classic or orchestral or however you want to describe it, or eclectic, and then I program from there. Mm, that's wonderful. And just a point of interest for those people who may be unfamiliar with the organ console, if you ever get to an organ and see and you're looking, where is the English horn, where is the English horn on the organ, it's called the cor anglais. So that way you you will recognize that. That's for those people who may not be uh, necessarily familiar with the organ. Now, just aside from being in a wonderful concert organist, you were also a choral conductor. Tell me about your time, your early experience with the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Well, that, that was uh, probably one of the high points of my career. Uh, I tell people, I, I think literally I woke up one day and was found myself the director. When I went to <laughs> Fisk to, in 1986, I was the assistant director, and Horace Boyer was actually the director that year, he was a visiting professor from University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and he directed the singers that year. I was his assistant, and what I didn't realize is that he was grooming me to take his place, and mm. uh, which basically was he would come to me and say, I need you to run this rehearsal tonight. I need you to do this. I need you to do that, and he was starting to share with me future bookings, and I'm thinking, well, why are you discussing this with me? Well, Little did I know that he was pushing for me to take his place, so I would be the next director. But it was it was a thrill. I never imagined myself ever doing that before. Uh, just um, never imagined, you know, that I would be selected as a director of the Jubilee Singers. So it was quite an honor, and um, I did a little research and discovered I was the youngest person to direct the singers. So even even bigger honor. Wow. And for those who may be unfamiliar with Dr. Horace Boyer, Dr. Boyer died back in 2009, and he's best known as the editor of the Episcopal Hymnal. Um, he was just a beloved musician who enjoyed teaching others, and it's certainly a loss 
uh, to the musical community. So, Dr. Horace Boyer, that's someone, again, the people are, are listening to the interviews, that might be somebody, again, um, for you to research and look up, a great musician um, indeed. Now, tell me, just in terms of of organ music or organ study at Fisk, uh, how is the program there, or, or do you have any organ students at your university? Uh, currently, I have uh, two, but they're both piano majors. I've had organ majors uh, before at Fisk and at Dillard. At Fisk, we have three degree programs, bachelor's of music degree in performance. So we have a Bachelor of Arts degree in music, which is a degree that allows a student to maybe pick up on another minor or has uh, more electives written into the program so they can either take music courses or other courses outside of music or independent studies or, or even pick up a minor if they want to do something else. And then we have a Bachelor of Science degree in music education. But all three degrees, the students can study organ. Uh, I've been trying to encourage uh, people to come major in organ at Fisk. We have a Hope Camp organ uh, built by Walter Hope Camp Sr. It was his next to last instrument, and Walter Hope Camp Sr. was probably the leading builder of the American organ reform movement of the 50s and 60s, which took us back to the practices and principles of uh, organs of the time of Johann Sebastian Bach. So he, he was a leader in that, and uh, pretty much set the stage for the future builders to do this uh, movement, especially in the 70s. So we have this next to last instrument still in original condition. Uh, no tonal changes have been made to it, and I don't want to change it because of its historic nature. And so uh, many of them are being either rebuilt or tossed away, so I'm determined we're going to keep ours. So we do have that instrument. And then I can get uh, access to other instruments in the city for the students to perform and practice on and to play. So, I, you know, we have um, opportunities. We're a small department, maybe 30 or so majors. Um, we are very much uh, probably a very close-knit department. The faculty take a great interest in our students. Uh, we're all very close enough. Many times we're described as being a family. So I think it's a good nurturing environment for a, a young student to come into. And uh, if I can use this as a plug to say I'm open to recruiting students for study and major in Oregon, please come to Fisk. That's wonderful. I also had the, the privilege of attending um, an historically black college and university, Virginia State University, which most people know in the musical community uh, was where Undine Smith-Moore spent the majority of, of her teaching career, but um, I want to just to reiterate the fact how you talked about the small music department, the family environment. I can definitely attest to that, and I'm certainly a beneficiary of, of such traditions. So I would encourage you, if you're out there and you're seeking to study organ and, and it's available at Fisk University, please definitely um, seek it out. I'm sure that you can read more on the program in the department at fisk.edu. So that's certainly a wonderful opportunity. And thank you, Dr. Williams, for bringing up that point because our HBCUs are definitely uh, providing a wonderful opportunity for music study and particularly um, studies at the Oregon. Now, I wanted to go on further uh, to maybe ask you or just to maybe discuss the fact that, of course, you know that uh, sacred music is certainly music in general is so important to the church experience, especially the African-American uh, church experience. But why do you think um, perhaps that a lot of people, 
particularly African-American students, are not exposed to organ study on a, on a larger scale or basically the decline in organist period? Well, that's um, kind of a tricky question to answer. I think there's so many different factors that have played into it. Um, I know in the 80s when I first started teaching, I noticed a decline in music students that when I got to Fisk, the department was probably at its smallest, and I don't remember exactly how many majors we had, but it was certainly a lot smaller than I remember growing up there, and I grew up on the, around the campus. My mother taught biology at Fisk for over 20 years, so I kind of knew what Fisk was and what, it, what to expect, and it was a bit surprising to find out that the numbers were down in terms of the number of majors. But what I was discovering at that time, uh, students were saying, I want to go into um, fields to make a lot of money. That somehow money became the big thing in the 80s, and um, most of our students were wanting to major pre-med, pre-law, or business. And um, I even had some dealings occasionally with a parent that says, oh, I don't want my, my son or my daughter in music. I want them to do this so they can make a good living. I want them to be a doctor. I want them to be a lawyer. Uh, so I think that period in the 80s and even into the early 90s kind of hurt the church because there weren't students coming in studying organ and um, to be sent out to the various churches. So churches, I believe, made adjustments to the music and to their musical requirements to be able to survive. So you had these students who were not as well-prepared coming into this as before, and even fewer students, I should say. And then, too, probably the contemporary church music has affected that greatly. There was a time I've noticed, um, although I think this trend is changing, that people had the idea that I didn't, don't really need to know music to be able to play the contemporary style of church music. I think that's mm. now starting to change. But I think for a while, why major in music? Why spend that energy majoring in music when I don't need it, when churches don't require it of me? Now I believe that's changing and students are starting to return to the music department, music discipline. Uh, also, too, with the fact that uh, they maxed out, you might say, those areas that uh, medical fields, uh, the legal uh, profession and business profession. So now they're discovering there are actually jobs in music, and maybe that's where I should be. So I think that mm. I think that really kind of hurt the church, and, and then some churches maybe tossed pipe organs um, to get keyboards or electronic instruments. And so now you're coming up with a generation of kids, some of whom have never been exposed to the pipe organ. Mm. Well, you know what? That that seems to be a common thread. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, the acclaimed tenor George Shirley was on. He was on um, the Trailblazer series. He's the, the inaugural interview. But Mr. Shirley mentioned that same thing. He shared an experience about what he, uh, the short of it, that he went to a particular church and this um African-American congregation moved into a church that was formerly occupied by a white American congregation, and the first thing they did was remove the glorious pipe organ and replace it with, you know, a Hammond organ. So that's amazing that you all kind of somewhat touched on the same 
the same type of, of, of trend there as far as uh, church music is concerned. It really is. I want to go back. I kind of rushed through the beginning when I was talking about the organ at the Washington National Cathedral. I do want to just go ahead and further reiterate the fact that the great organ of the Washington National Cathedral was built by E.M. Stinner and Sun Organ Company, and it was installed in 1938. It consists of 189 ranks and 10,647 pipes. So that is certainly a major, major instrument. Now tell me, I'm looking at your recital program, and um, you had mentioned that you were playing the piece uh, by Leo Sowerby, Prelude on Were You There?, that's interesting that this composer had set this spiritual in this way. Could you maybe describe the texture or the mood of the piece? Well, he uh, first of all, I, uh, that when he wrote the piece, actually in 1953, I believe it was, um, it was while he was still in Chicago at St. James Episcopal Church and teaching at the American Conservatory. He um, this was, I believe, the first of all, the only spiritual setting in the. Fiscal hymnal at that time, hymnal 1940, and this may might be one of the earliest settings of a spiritual. I can't say it's the earliest setting of a spiritual because actually John Works' piece from the Deep South, the first movement, is based on the spiritual. You may bury me in the East, which that was written in 1936. But this is definitely an early setting of the uh, spiritual. I think he does capture the 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 meaning of the text and the mood of the piece very well in, the, in this piece. Um, um, I think you have to understand what the text is saying. And when I think about the text, um, you know, this uh, a spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? You think of a, a slave who has experienced um, the harsh treatment uh, that blacks received during slavery times, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, something that they probably could not even imagine what uh, Jesus was experiencing, yet they experienced something uh, that was very inhumane and very inhumane treatment. But I think of that line, oh, it sometimes it causes me to tremble. Um, I just, you know, think, okay, that's probably bring, could bring, that brought back terrible memories to that slave who created, all those slaves who created this uh, music. Sowerby, uh, both times uh, you hear that section in the, of the melody, he doesn't want a pretty full sound. He wants a pretty full organ on that. So he doesn't want this big sound from in that section. Mm. Now let me ask you, um, a few weeks ago I um, was talking with uh, Dr. Mickey Thomas Perry, who is a well-known organist here in D.C., and he played an organ recital at the Kennedy Center. And um, one of the things that rung out to me was that he really didn't have a lot of uh, practice time uh, on the instrument. It's almost like he had to rehearse his program and then play it. How much rehearsal time uh, were you allotted on the cathedral organ? Well, it's uh, again. It's, usually, we always say we never have enough time at, at the organ, especially when it's a, a new one. I'm only getting a couple of a few hours each evening, this evening and tomorrow evening. Um, again, the cathedral is so busy; just getting in can be very difficult. So, I will be practicing uh, probably about ten or eleven hours total on the instrument, which mm. is a little bit nail biting. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice to have even more time, but, you know, that the, the cathedral is a very busy place. I understand you, you have to fit in where you can. 
I can remember being in grad school at the University of Michigan and having to practice in Hill Auditorium after midnight until the wee small hours in the morning because no one else was in there at the time. So you, you take what you can get and you use it to the best of your ability and use your time wisely. That You said it all right there. Use your time wisely, so that's definitely a point to bring away there. I wanted to ask you also, while you're sitting at that massive console, are there any stops or any features of the organ that really stick out to you that have maybe become favorites? Well, I think um, the uh, solo stops, such as the uh, English horn of Coranglais and uh, the clarinet, those uh, I did use the clarinet on my last recital and fell in love with it. That's another reason why I thought I had to find something that would use that stop again. Um, but I think just um, what stands out to me is just the, the massive size of the instrument. And this instrument does have one unique feature I've never seen anywhere else, is it, that is the pedal board raises and lowers. Because the mm. idea usually the bench, you raise and lower the bench. And... Uh, but, they, but the idea when you lower the bench, you're putting, or raise the bench, you're putting uh, organists at different distances from the music rack. So a shorter mm. organist will actually be further from the music rack than a taller organist. So keep the bench at the same height and move the pedal board up and down. There's a switch that does that. So it's, that's a neat feature about that instrument, something I would have never thought of. <laughs> I'm sure that is a different a different feature. Now tell me, how were you introduced to the organ? Well, I grew up hearing it in church. Uh, the, the, my church uh, was First Baptist Capitol Hill in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the oldest black Baptist church in Nashville. Uh, they did have a pipe organ at, at one time. When I was coming up and interested in it and started noticing it, it was not playable. We used the electronic, which was supposed to be temporary. But still, that fascinated me, watching the organist play. This electronic was only two manuals of keyboards, and but watching her play that with and her feet, it seemed more fascinating to me than the piano. And mm. so that always sparked my interest. Um, when I was a very young boy, about four, I guess, who was, uh, my godparents taught, my godfather taught at Fisk, taught biology at Fisk, and lived around the corner from us. And we go visit. Well, my godmother's sister was a retired piano teacher who was in declining health at that time, and um, my godmother was taking care of her, but she had her piano. And I would go and sit at the piano and bang at it. And my mother used to tell me, get off that piano, stop banging, get off the piano. And she would, oh, my godmother's sister would say, oh, no, let him play. He's going to be a musician someday. <laughs> and I think my mother kind of looked at that and said, oh, not, that's nonsense. Well, she left me her piano when she died. She left me her piano, so that was my first piano. But I always kind of wanted to play the organ. I was trying to figure out how to make this piano into an organ. And um, I had a cousin who took organ lessons for a while before I started. And um, I think my, my my mother thought, well, because your cousin is doing it, you want to do it. And... Um, we went to a friend's house. They had an electronic instrument in the living room. I sat down and started playing hymn on it. My mother thought, oh, I guess we better give him organ lessons. So I started <laughs> studying organ. At age 11, I was just tall enough to reach the pedal. 
Wow. It's so wonderful to talk to different people because I had that same very experience. When I was growing up in the church, I used to play on the piano, and it wasn't my mother. It would be the people in the church. They'd say, stop banging, stop banging. And then mm-hmm. they never knew that years later that I would end up being an organist and playing at several churches. So that's a prime example when you see a child, you know, acting out in such a positive way that, you know, you might want to be hesitant and think before you chastise because you don't know the gift that you might be thwarting there. So that's a, a interesting, interesting story. Now, listen, I was on YouTube of all places searching, trying to see where can I find a video of Dr. Williams playing. I was searching and searching, and I, lo and behold, I came across this video of you accompanying the great late conductor Moses Hogan at, uh, it was a National Baptist Convention, and you all were performing his anthem, Oh, Magnify the Lord. Could you maybe talk about your experiences working with Moses Hogan? Moses Hogan and I uh, taught at Dillard. Moses taught at Dillard for several years. He was on the uh, faculty when I arrived at Dillard. Um, at that time, Moses was just getting into choral music. He was, most people don't know this, a very fine pianist. And I believe had he really focused on it, he would have been one of our premier concert pianists. He he was this phenomenal pianist, had this phenomenal technique, and I mean, he was a virtuoso. He, I don't know of anyone I could say could sit there at the piano and do difficult things and make it look so easy and effortless. He was a virtuoso. I don't believe Moses liked to practice. I think that was his, um, his big downfall. I just don't think he was really liked to sit at a piano and practice for hours. I think he liked to be out among people and working with uh, the groups. He had formed choral groups at this time in New Orleans, and um, basically this his Moses Hogan Chorale went through several different editions with different names, but he when he started publishing his spiritual arrangements, that is when he really took off. And um, it was only just a few short years of uh, publishing, but he was prolific. He left uh, Dillard, I believe, in 1997, I believe it was, and um, basically he wrote music. He was artist-in-residence at Loyola University in New Orleans. Uh, up until the time of his death, but basically his focus was doing his uh, his spiritual arrangements and getting it published, and I think that's where he how he really came to to fame. But I always admired his uh, piano ability; he could sight read anything put in front of him, and as if he's mm. played it uh, for years. You know, he was just this really gifted, phenomenal musician that um, I think. Many people don't know that one side of him, the pianist side. If you look at his uh, solo arrangements of spirituals for uh, piano and voice, the voice part is pretty much straightforward. The piano part is quite elaborate because often many of those were actually improvised at Dillard in, at programs in the chapel at Dillard. He would, he would have the singer sing the melody, and he would do these very complex accompaniments. Matter of fact, I believe some of them, uh, when he published it, he had to kind of simplify the accompaniment a bit just to make it playable for most of us who are not really pianists. <laughs> but uh, it was the stuff he would do was just uh, truly amazing, and he would just be so he'd just make it look so effortless when he played. That was I always admired that about him as well. 
Thank you so much for sharing that about Moses Hogan. I had the opportunity to meet the late Moses Hogan a, a good number of years back, um, right before he passed. He did a workshop at the University of Maryland at College Park. It was a part of uh, the American Corps Directors Association, one of the regional conferences um, here in the area, and it was such a delight to have that that interaction uh, with him. Uh, just as we round up the interview, I certainly want to definitely express my gratitude for you coming on today, and I want to know, um, just in wrapping up, as far as you've been at the cathedral, had you had an opportunity to interact with any of the music music um, uh, staff there, such as the music director or the associate organist? Uh, not so far on this trip. I just actually got into D.C. last night, so mm. um, I had a chance to do that. I did um, get to know Eric Suter, who was the former organist at the cathedral when I was here before, and um, I had um, several email exchanges with Scott Dietra, who's the current organist um, at the cathedral, so I look forward to actually meeting him in person <laughs> after uh, bunch of emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a great, great organist. Uh, he also is the associate um, conductor for the Washington Bach Concert, which is conducted by J. Riley Lewis. I, I had the opportunity to review their concerts from time to time, and I was just at the cathedral this this um, last week for the Cathedral Choral Society concert. They did this program of Russian Riches, which is a magnificent exposure. Uh, to Russian music, because I had nothing. I had no idea that core Russian core music existed outside of Rachmaninoff Vespers and the uh, Tchaikovsky Salvation is created. So that was a great experience. Uh, but just as a takeaway, uh, what would you perhaps, if you, what kind of advice would you give to a young person who wanted to pursue a career in perhaps organ performance? Well, I think, first of all, I would encourage uh, as much piano study as possible before and even during organ study. I don't really like to take a, an organ student unless they can at least play a Bach two-part invention. Uh, mm. And I have, I have taken some students who have not done that, but I think it's um, if they can do that, organ study, they're kind of well on the way of organ study. Uh, much practice. Um, is very essential. Um, you really have to be devoted to the instrument. I think organists are a interesting type of personality. They they love the instrument. They love doing it. So it becomes for an organist more than just a job or an occupation. It becomes a passion. And I think you do have to have a passion for the instrument uh, and for doing this. But I would encourage. Uh, study. I tell my students, learn as much repertoire as you can while you're young, because when you get older there's not and start working, there's not going to be the time to do that. So learn as much repertoire as possible. So I just believe, just keep learning repertoire and try to get as many opportunities to perform, even if it's just playing a prelude in church or playing for the offertory. Get as much opportunity to get in front of an audience and perform and always um, seize the moment, you might say. Mm, very well. I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you and learn a little bit more about your career and this recital. I do want to reiterate to the listeners that Dr. Anthony Williams of Fisk University will be presenting a full organ recital at the Washington National Cathedral on Sunday, May 22nd. 
the recital starts at 515. The, the suggested donation for the recital at the door is $10. And, Dr. Williams, I also want to let you know that I have put the word out to the Washington, D.C. Fisk um, Alumni Association, so they should be in the house at your recital on Sunday. And I also contacted the university and, and made the media aware there of this interview today. So hopefully you have all of your supporters from Fisk there with you as well. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Oh, can I point out right quick, you mentioned Undine Smith-Moore earlier. She was, I believe, a 1926 graduate of Fisk. Oh, wow. Yes, she was. Thank you for point, pointing that out. That is a that is a <laughs> you know Virginia State loves to claim her, but she was an alumna of Fisk University. Thank you so much. That's a great point. Well, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us today for this very special interview, and I certainly look forward to being at your recital on Sunday, May 22nd, at the Washington National Cathedral at 5:15. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Listeners, you just finished listening to a wonderful interview with Dr. Anthony Williams, University Organist at Fisk University. He will be presented in a full organ recital at the Washington National Cathedral on Sunday, May 22nd at 5.15. Again, the donation at the door is for $10. And for more information, you can go on the Washington National Cathedral website by visiting National Cathedral. Dot org. Again, that's nationalcathedral.org. And just to recap, I also want to encourage you again to attend the performance of the Verdi Requiem on Saturday, May 21st at 8 o'clock p.m. at the Music Center at Strathmore. That performance will feature soprano Ariana Zuckerman, mezzo-soprano Patricia Miller, tenor Don Bernardini, and bass Kevin Dace, conducted by music director Stan Engelbretson, who was just recently on as the inaugural interview of the Maestro series. If you're not in the Washington, D.C. area on Sunday, I would encourage you to drop by uh, the Eman Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland, at 5 o'clock p.m., where they will present the Community Choir under the direction of Dr. Marco Merrick in their spring concert. Again, that event is at 5 o'clock on Sunday as well in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, for more information about that event, you may call the church at 410-728-4129. Again, I am Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I want you to stay tuned for a very special interview on the Celebrity Series. That's right, the Celebrity Series. You know we have several series uh, here on the African-American Voice and Classical Music, and I'm pleased to announce today that on Tuesday, May 24th at 12 o'clock noon, I will be joined by the incomparable Richard Smallwood. Again, I'll be joined by the incomparable Richard Smallwood on Tuesday, May 24th for the second installment of the Celebrity Series. Mr. Smallwood will talk about uh, his role and his career in gospel music and his wonderful way of infusing classical repertoire and music by the masters for the master in his music. So, again, make sure you mark your calendars for May 24th, Tuesday at 12 o'clock noon as I interview Richard Smallwood. Again, I am Patrick D. McCoy, 
the African-American voice in classical music. I thank you all for joining me today, and please stay tuned for the next interview, which will occur on Tuesday, May 24th at 12 o'clock noon with the phenomenal Richard Smallwood. I would encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Patrick D. McCoy. You may also find me on Facebook, Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I wish you all a great day.